0: The old pilot's plain tales. All weather, Heather. It's 20 years in the past, and Chokio is a dusty, fly-blown Kenyan frontier town that is a long way from the tourist images of African safari lodges. The emaciated cattle of the Takana wander the dirt streets, and the place stinks of foul garbage and excrement. The flies are thick and it's as dangerous here as it is dirty. Drought has decimated the cattle herds, so the desperate Tacana have mainly become bandits, robbing anyone careless enough to risk travelling at night. Only a few days before, a driver was shot dead and his passengers robbed. They are also at war with the neighbouring tribe, Toposa, and nightly gun battles can be heard in the distance. There's an airstrip here with a few buildings, offices, and compounds. One with a pool and a bar. At six o'clock sharp, an attractive blonde can be found there, sipping a gin and tea while the ice tinkles in her glass. At first glance, she looks out of place, but her easy manner and familiarity marks her as a local. She's well-spoken with the classic British accent of the well-to-do. Her manner is direct and her style betrays a good upbringing. She's a product of the British Empire, self-sufficient and capable. Born in England but brought up in Nigeria, her father was a mine manager. At eighteen she married an army officer and had two children by him, but at twenty-one she left him and married an older chap who owned his own aircraft. She was keen to learn to fly it, but her new husband said that she would be an awful pilot, she was terrible at maths. Eventually she persuaded him to let her try, and despite having two more children, by the age of twenty-five she had indeed gained her pilot's licence falling in love with her instructor along the way and having another child by him. A girlfriend described her as stunningly beautiful, with natural grace, a very open and honest character who wouldn't try and hide anything, even her lovers. She took her commercial exams and flight tests in England, flying out of Gatwick Airport and landing sandwiched between Boeing 707s. She needed money to keep her children in boarding school, so she started bush flying, something she loved, initially for flying doctors and the police air wing, building up experience and learning to find the half-hidden airstrips that were her destinations. Her flying career started in earnest with Air Kenya flying freight. This was followed by a job for Kenya air charters, taking wealthy white hunters out into the Sudan bush, in a beechcraft barren 55. Good years, she says, staying in hunting camps for a week or more and floating down the Nile on river barges searching for lion, antelope and elephant. Landing on poorly prepared strips that were difficult to find, particularly just using a simple map, she learned her trade flying the bush the hard way. A careful pilot, Meticulous about looking after her aircraft, she knew that flying in some of the most remote parts of Africa killed many slapdash aviators who took risks. There was enough excitement to be found without the additional thrill of risking an engine failure through poor maintenance. She continued to progress, gaining her instrument rating in 1970 and qualifying on the Islander, Comanche, Aztec, Seneca and Cessna 402, to name a few. Despite her measured approach to flying, she gained a solid reputation for being able to work in the worst of conditions and earned a nickname that would stick with her for life, All Weather Heather. Heather Stewart's meticulous attitude didn't always prevent the unexpected. She experienced the usual problems that Africa would throw her way, Flat tyres, flat batteries, broken radios, and villagers who siphoned off the aviation fuel left at airstrips. These were the kind of problems that all bush pilots suffered from, but Heather soon gained a reputation for toughness, reliability and safety that got her work flying the rich and famous, film stars and the like. She even met the Pope. If you want to get a feel for what kind of girl she was, try reading about the pioneer aviator Beryl Markham, who captivated Hemingway and wrote the book West with the Night*. She was even involved with Joy and George Adamson, who gained fame for their efforts to introduce lions back into the wild, documented in the famous book, film and foundation, born free. Heather is mentioned in the follow-up book, Christian the Lion. Flying into Korra, the book reads, is always exhilarating. The camp is located in a very remote area of Kenya, and for the last hour of the flight there are none of the cultivated patches or gleaming tin roofs that usually betray human habitation. Terence had planned to extend the landing strip, after some pilots had expressed their concerns about its length, but this didn't worry our pilot, Heather Stewart, who was an excellent pilot. It wasn't long before we had touched down safely. She did a stint flying the Lawrence of Arabia film director David Lean around and took to delivering Cat into Somalia, The mild narcotic is legal there, and since alcohol isn't available to the Muslim population, it's their drug of choice. I never had enough fuel for a round trip, she said, and I had to get out onto the wing with jerry cans to refuel. Well, a gun battle between warlords broke out, and there were bullets whizzing around. I finished up and got into the cockpit, but my plane had six bullet holes in it and one passed right through close to the back of my head. Missed me by that much, she said, spreading her thumb and forefinger. That made me think. So when someone said, go fly in the Sudan, they really need people there, I went. With her short blonde hair, good looks and brilliant smile, Heather could easily have been mistaken for the hostess of an English garden party, but she was never afraid of getting her hands dirty. The UN needed a base for their operations into the Sudan, Operation Lifeline. More than two million had died there, if not by bullets and bombs, then from the famine and disease brought about by war, drought and flood. The United Nations classified the region as a state in chronic emergency and was trying to fly in supplies. Heather saw an opportunity to help, and with another pilot, an American called Jim Gaunt, she set about building an airstrip at Locky and she started a charter company called Trackmark Aviation. Thus began a turning point in Heather's life, from the glamour and flying of the rich and famous to the down-to-earth work of transporting aid into desperate regions of Africa. Sudan is the biggest country on the continent, but for years it had suffered from intractable civil wars. The pilots who operated there worked in conditions that would give the average airline pilot palpitations and panic attacks. No control towers, weather forecast, navigation beacons, radar or the like. These aviators didn't have adventures, they lived them on a daily basis. On one trip, Heather was flying three C-130 Hercules pilots to look at possible airstrips to operate their aircraft from. They got to a town called Acabo that hadn't had an aircraft land there for years. An overflight showed the strip as dry and clear but underneath the crust of dry earth lay a soft black and soggy foundation. Heather tells of putting the Cessna 402 down but it sank through the crust and got completely stuck. They couldn't take off and nobody could land there to rescue them. They ate a few biscuits, all they had, and purified river water whilst Heather radioed for a food and water drop but it was three days before anyone could get to them. The airfield had been the scene of a recent battle. The Sudan People's Liberation Army rebels had driven off the government forces. There were thousands of mosquitoes, the heat was terrible, and there was always the fear that the army would come back and attack. There were many dead bodies lying about, she said, and you could imagine what it was like. One of the passengers was a survival expert, but then he got bitten by a scorpion and was in a great deal of pain. The plane with the food and water dropped morphine as well, and we shot him up with so much of it that he got stoned. Finally, one of the Catholic missions was able to get a helicopter to them. Heather stripped the radio from the Cessna and they got out. It was quite good, she said to change my clothes and have a bath. Track marks had a small beginning. Just me and my aeroplane, she said. But the Islamic government in Khartoum, who seized power, declared the war in the south to be a jihad. In the following years, it would deny aid to southern Sudan and drop cluster bombs on churches, missions, and defenseless villages massacring thousands and driving thousands more from their homes into concentration camps or the bush. It even revived the ancient practice of raiding towns on horseback, killing the elderly and men of fighting age, then rounding up the young women and children to sell them into slavery. The work of the UN began to grow and dozens of non-governmental organisations were bringing in tons of aid that needed to be flown into the Sudan. The amount they shifted exceeded the total flown during the Berlin airlift. Heather began taking on other pilots and at one time her company employed 22. She invested in Loki by building a safe enclave with a bar and even a pool. As a side note, it's still there should you ever want to explore the real side of Africa, and they'll rent you a room. The flying was still dangerous. The government insisted on advance warning of aid flights, and it sometimes dispatched militia units to seize them. The SPLA rebels controlled vast areas of the south, so the government frequently denied permission to fly in an attempt to starve the rebels into submission. In response to the dire need for aid, the bush pilots delivered their cargoes to the no-fly zones in defiance of Khartoum's threats that their planes would be shot out of the sky. They called it flying on the dark side and filed false plans or no plans at all. The risks were high. Heather did a lot of flying for the Catholic missionaries in Sudan's western province. Taking off before dawn, she would land in the early light and then throw camouflage netting over her aircraft to keep it hidden until it was safe to depart at night. These airstrips had no lighting, so she would line up for takeoff and aim at a single torch held up by someone standing at the other end of the strip. A friend recalled another harrowing flight. We were on her caravan aircraft ready to leave and find a group of slaves we were attempting to reach in another region when a number of men came up to the plane carrying a youth who had been shot a number of times during a raid. He was barely conscious and had lost copious amounts of blood and with no medical assistance available, only had a few hours to live. I'll fly him to Lockie, as it was affectionately named, and the Red Cross Hospital there, Heather said. At the time, Lockie had the largest field hospital in the world there. But I need someone to come with me while I fly the plane, Jane and I volunteered for the task, and in the end it was decided that the young man's mother should come with us. Words will never describe what we endured on that flight. Blood continued to run down the floor of the aircraft as we sought to administer morphine and check its vital signs. We felt so helpless. At one point he opened his eyes and his mother wept at the sight. He had a huge wound under his arm, and the blood was escaping rapidly. There's duct tape in the rear compartment, Heather yelled from the front, and we wrapped the wound in it, watching as the bleeding somehow stopped. Five hours later, we arrived in Loughy, where the boy and his mother were whisked off to the hospital from the airstrip. A year later, we happened upon him and he had recovered, though with the loss of the use of his arm. Heather invited us to the hospitality camp she ran there, just off the single airstrip, treating us to a sumptuous dinner and her best room. Even there, exhausted from the flight, she constantly looked out for others. Heather Stewart spent years flying people like us into some of the riskiest situations and on many of those occasions chose to park her plane with us for the night in case something serious were to occur. She slept on the ground with us, endured the heat, the food, the massive scope of human suffering and the shared grief at the senseless death of hundreds of thousands. She helped us fight slavery assisted others flying in emergency supplies and workers, and constantly used her locky camp to assuage the pains, heal the wounds, and recover the spirits. Heather tried to stay neutral in her opinions about the conflict to avoid getting caught up in the causes, but she admits to flying medevacs for wounded gorillas when called upon. I always carry a jar of Vicks, it's a smelly chest rub, with me, she said, and I put a little in each nostril. The stench of gangrene can be overwhelming in a small plane. It's dangerous flying, it's quite a buzz really. I'd much rather do that than fly a bunch of fat tourists to look at lions. The one thing she wouldn't do though was deliver weapons possibly as a result of her decision, as the work dried up so did the money and her company shrank back down, but Heather kept flying. To honour her efforts, the missionaries brought her to Rome for a private audience with Pope John Paul. This Protestant woman of dubious morals and multiple marriages knelt and kissed the pontiff's ring. To cover her bases, she laughingly admitted, She later flew the Archbishop of Canterbury on a tour of South Sudan. Heather died peacefully of leukemia in her home in Kenya nearly a year ago, aged 78. She left many full of admiration for her and the world is a sadder place without her in it. My thanks to listener Josine LaFontaine who first told me about Heather Stewart. If you enjoy Plane Tales and want to do something to help, please pop over to Apple Podcasts, yeah, right now, and leave us a review. As I'm sure you know, Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find that and all the Plane Tales at AirlinePilotGuy.com